0: All right, if you got a Bible with you, you can open it up to John chapter seven. As always, we got the verses on the screen so you can follow along with us. But we've been in John chapter seven for several weeks now, talking about this one setting, this kind of one event with multifaceted things all going on at the same time. Where the Jewish people would come back yearly for the Feast of Tabernacles, for the Feast of Booths, depending upon how you want to call it. But the concept was, was every year, ironically around this time of year, at the end of the harvest season, they would come back to Jerusalem and they would literally camp out for seven days. Now, again, it's not camping like we're accustomed to today with, you know, motor coaches and, you know, RVs and slide outs and solo stoves and all the finer things. I mean, they're not cooking s'mores, right? Uh, Hersey, Pennsylvania hasn't been discovered yet. And so th- none of that is happening there. But, but it is significant that they are staying in tents. They are staying in booths, which would literally be just kind of like tree poles with a tarp uh, kind of canvas on the top of it because it was to serve as a reminder. For these seven days that when they were leaving uh, Egypt, when they were leaving slavery, and they were on their way to the promised land, that God provided for them, and he was their shelter, and he tabernacled with them, and the Lord said, let there be light, and um, we'll see if there is, all right? Um, But I'll just keep talking, because you don't need to see me anyway, all right? So... uh, When they came out of Egypt and they were, now we're all just, (laughs) all right, that means somebody's leaning up against a light somewhere. That's normally what that happens, all right. But as they're traveling uh, into the promised land, the, the Lord is their shelter. He met with them. He tabernacled with them. But you're gonna see today in this story, there was also something else that happened during that trek that was very, very significant that Jesus is going to pick up on in John chapter 7. And I'll explain that historical significance to you. All right, so we're gonna start in verse 37, work our way down to verse 52. All right? It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now let's stop and chat here because there's a reason why John tells us this happened on the last day. And there's a reason specific to the words that Jesus is talking about here that has a deeper meaning that I want us to see and to understand. And It's fascinating to me, and again, which happens every week as I'm studying these texts, uh, things just kind of jump out, and, and, and the Lord just shows me some significance to what's going on that honestly I didn't know prior to studying it. But this significance on the last day when Jesus speaks up and he says, "'If anyone's thirsty, come to me, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water.'" It's because as a part of this celebration, as a part of this ceremony, these seven days that they were there, they weren't just hanging out in tents for seven days, they were doing some specific things each day to celebrate. And part of the tradition, part of the ceremony was, is they would leave the Temple Mount, which is up on the top, and they would come down the south side, and there's a valley there called the Kidron Valley, and hopefully one day you'll get to go with us and and see this, because it's fascinating once you can see it and understand even more so. I mean, the Bible just came alive to me even more so when we were in Israel a few years ago. And so you come down the south side, and there's a place there called the Pool of Siloam which we're actually gonna see in John chapter nine uh, later on in, when we get to that point in the gospel. But what they would do, and this was an area where there was a fresh water spring that fed this pool, and then they would go get water from there. So every day for seven days, there would be a procession led by the high priest where they would fill up bowls with water, and they would walk back up the hill onto the temple mount. And when they got there to the temple courts, they would start singing. And there would be uh, uh, literally the crowd, kind of a choir, would sing Psalm 113 through 118 which they would call the Hallel, which means to boast or to brag. It's part of where we get our word hallelujah. Uh, and I've told you this before, but Hallel, the first part of hallelujah, we just brought it over into English, means boast, and then Yah is the first part of his name. So boast in God, or hallelujah, or Yahweh. And so the idea is they would come and they would sing and they would celebrate. And then at, when they get to that point, they would blow on the shofar, which was like a trumpet, three times, and at, when they would get to Psalm 118, the people would shout, giving thanks to God, and then the high priest would pour out the water. And that was symbolic to when they were in the, the desert going on the way to the promised land, God provided water for them. He was pouring out water. And so this ceremony they did every day for seven days to remember what God had done, but there was also a deeper spiritual significance to the story of the water because there was also prophecies in Zechariah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and different places, how God would make the water flow in the temple again, and he would pour out his spirit on all people, and so they would come every year and celebrate this. And it's on the last day. So just imagine they're doing this celebration for seven days so that every day they walk down, get the water, come back up, sing, praise God, pour out the water. Walk down, get the water, come back up, sing, praise God, pour out the water. So after they've just done that seven days in a row, Jesus stands up and he speaks and he says, listen, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me, and out of his heart will flow water like what you just see flowed. So that's the historical backdrop to what Jesus is saying here. They've just been celebrating for seven days straight how God provided water. Now, the story of how God provided it is even crazier. If you don't know the historical significance of it, I'll share it with you. So when they're leaving the promised land, they come out of Egypt and they go south. And they go south to where Mount Sinai is, and that's where God gives Moses the commandments. And while they're there, they don't have food, and so God provides manna from heaven, literally every morning. And we've already seen in John chapter six where Jesus talked about the bread and how he is the bread. But also, when you're in the desert, not only do you have to eat, but you have to drink. So in Exodus chapter 17, there's this fascinating story where the people are complaining, which I know is always foreign to us that church people would be complaining, right? But they're complaining and saying, we have no water. So God, Moses goes to God, and God tells Moses to do a crazy thing. He says, get that staff that you have in your hand, the one that you had before Pharaoh, the one that you had before the sea when you parted the sea, you set it down, in the sea's Parted, I want you to take that same staff, and in Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, God tells Moses to strike the rock, literally hit a rock, and out of that rock will flow water. And that's what Moses does. Moses takes his staff in front of the people. He hits the rock, and out of the rock flows water. Now, little side note, does does water normally come out of a rock? No. That doesn't normally happen, right? That is not natural. But God, who created rocks and he created water, is what we would call supernatural. He's above and beyond natural. So in his superness, he can make natural things do supernatural things. And so he tells Moses to hit the rock and then out of that rock flows the water. Now, here's where the story just gets even cooler to me. That's what they're celebrating. For seven days, they're celebrating that Moses hit a rock with his staff and water came out. And after they just celebrated that for seven days, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, come to me. And out of your heart... I will make flow streams of living water. Now, here's the connection I want you to see. In Ezekiel, the Bible compares our hearts to stones, to rocks. And there's a prophecy that God gives Ezekiel, and he says, I will put my spirit in you, and I will remove your heart of stone." and i will put in a heart of flesh. And Jesus picks up on that. That's why he says as the scriptures says and he says in the same way that God made water flow out of a rock, i will make water flow out of your heart that is a rock that is a stone. Because see here's the human problem that we have. The human problem that we have is nothing can satisfy our hearts. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says this. If you haven't memorized this verse, I would put it in the list of one to memorize. Jeremiah seventeen says, nine says this. I'm going to literally read it to you. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So our biggest problem, I say this to you often, our biggest problem is not something out there as if another country or an enemy or other people. Our biggest problem is in here. Not something outside of me, but something inside of me. And Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine says, that's my heart. The problem is my heart. And I love one passage. I've got this quote on the screen. You might want to write it down. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Let me read that again. The heart of the human problem, then flipped, is the problem of the human heart. Houston, we have a problem and the problem is our heart. That's the problem. So here's the irony that Jesus is saying Your heart is hardened. Your heart, think about the words, the language that the Bible uses a hard heart. Is there anything harder than a rock? Anything harder than a stone? And the Bible describes our heart like a rock, it is hardened, it is stone. It is not a a, a heart that can produce anything life-giving. And for those of you that maybe haven't lived long enough to doubt your own heart, just keep living. Because here's what I know to be true about me. Ain't nobody lied to me more than me. Have you figured that out about yourself? No one has lied to you more I'm not saying other people haven't lied to you. Oh, they have. But no one has lied to you more than your own human heart. Because you know what your human heart says to you all the time? Oh, this thing will satisfy you. This thing. You know, when we're children, it's stuff, right? We just want stuff. We just want stuff. We don't have to, we don't have to teach our kids how to say the word mine. You just pray to God they say daddy before they say mine, Right? Kids come out of the womb hard hearted, biting, scratching, fighting over their stuff. Why? Because their cold little human heart. Yes, your little angel child, all right, has a cold dead heart who wants things for themselves selfishly over people. Then you kind of move up and you go through this season called hormones. Right? Yeah. And those of us have been through it know it's tough. And then boys go from being gross to you to you know, attractive to you, and girls you know, have cooties and now you want to kiss them. And there's something that's happening in your heart that's now starting to say to you, oh, if you just had a significant other, if you just had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, then your heart would be at home and be happy and be safe. Right? which I, I was a student pastor for over a decade. I used to always laugh, and I, I saw this phenomenon happen all the time. And I used to beg and plead with our sweet, precious little teenage girls and say, listen, do you think some snotty-nosed, sweaty boy's gonna do it? Look at him. The boys will be over there picking their nose, burping, you know, making other ungodly noises, and you're like, you think that? And those of it." Women, that you've been married to us for 20 years. You're like, yeah, it ain't much changed. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> but our heart lies to us and says, oh, another human will make you happy. And, and then that doesn't ha- start to happen. So you go through school and you go to college or whatever you do for a career choice. And then something within you says, well, if you just work hard enough... You know, you find your passion, and that's a word that would just find. Today, it's like nobody wants a job that serves others. They just want a, passion, a job that serves themselves and makes them feel good because we've so flipped everything in our culture where we're so hyper-individualistic. My job is not no longer about the benefit of the world around me. It's about my own personal satisfaction, which is just your heart lying to you again, saying that a job can actually make you happy. I don't know if you've worked long enough to realize it can't. And, and so then you work the job to get money and then buy more stuff. It's almost like you're just a reinvented two-year-old again, <laughs> thinking that if I just had more money, more stuff, then I'd get some respect, right? I'd be an influencer or people would like me. This is how our heart lies to us. And here's what Jesus is saying. There is no life that can flow out of a dead heart. The heart of the problem is you have a problem with your heart. You need a new heart. I said this before in many messages, and there's things that kind of just reverberate through all the messages, but sin is what has messed up our heart. And it lies to us And it tells us even good things that God made, like relationships, like work, like stuff, can do for us what only God can do for us, which is satisfy. So sin becomes like salt water. Sin is like salt water. Now, I don't know if you've ever been stranded in the ocean, but if you are, the one thing that they tell you is do not drink the salt water. Do not drink it, no matter how thirsty you are. Don't drink it. Because the moment you start drinking it, you will die of thirst. Why? Because the salt content within the water is so high that your kidneys can't process it. It will literally shut them down. And if you can't drink and go to the bathroom, you die. It's pretty simple. And so the moment you drink that first thing of salt water, it it feels good initially because it's wet, but it has within it something that will kill you. That's sin. It's initially satisfying, but in your system leads to your death. So our heart lies to us and tells us that more Sin, more salt water is what we need. And it's interesting to me, the biblical people, and and it has to do partly with the geographic region which which in they live, which is mostly desert, they don't call it fresh water. Have you ever wondered why the Bible calls it living water? We call it fresh water here. They call it living water because it's water that helps you live. We would just call it fresh water. But the idea of fresh water is it's something that you can drink and it'll actually satisfy you. It won't kill you. So what Jesus is saying is if you come to me, watch this, just like I made water flow out of a rock, I'll make water flow out of your heart. How? How does that happen? Well, let's keep reading in the Bible. John gives us some commentary, verse 39. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, remember, John wrote this decades after it happened. So John records Jesus's words when Jesus said this. And at the time when Jesus said it, no one understood the deeper meaning to which Jesus was speaking. But now here's John, the apostle, who is now post-resurrection, post-Acts chapter two, he has seen the spirit given, which was prophesied about in Joel, which Moses talked about as well. Oh, that God would pour out his spirit on all people, which John now understands the historical significance of how did water come out of the rock? In Exodus, it came out of the rock by the spirit. And how does water come out of our heart that satisfies our soul, living water, fresh water, it happens through the Spirit. Now there's a layer to this, again, that just blew my mind when I was looking at it. So let's go into the actual historical event and let me show you how the Bible understood even when Moses struck the rock, he was striking God. God. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, God gives Moses this instruction. He says, take the staff, go to the rock, and I will be before you. I will be before you. And then strike the rock. So I want you to visualize this spatially, all right? So hang with me here. So here's Moses, staff in his hand. Here's the rock. So just think, like you know, just like, kind of almost like stone mountain. There's this big, huge rock, not just like a little, pe- but a rock, a mountain. So here's Moses, here's the rock. And God says this in Exodus 17:6, I will be before you. So Moses is facing the rock. Here's Moses, here's the rock. Who's in between Moses and the rock? Now this is a Sunday school answer. It's always God, all right? You might not have grown. Jesus. All right, so let's try this again. Who's in between Moses and the rock? Jesus. Thank you. You're paying attention. All right? So watch this. When Moses rears back to strike, who is he hitting? Physically, he's hitting the rock. Spiritually, he's hitting Jesus. Jesus was struck by the staff of Moses. So the water that came out didn't come out from the physical rock, only it came out from the spiritual rock who was Christ. You say, where in the heck do you get that from? Well, look, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll show you. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. First four verses, I got these on the screen. This is Paul, talk, Paul talking to the Corinthians. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Verse 3 and 4. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock, know what it is, capital R, that followed them, and the rock was who? Christ. The rock was Christ. So when Moses struck the rock, he wasn't just striking a physical thing, he was striking a spiritual reality, Jesus. And so when he struck Jesus, water flowed. Now watch this, when Jesus was on the cross and he breathes his last and he says it is finished, the Bible says they took a spear, punctured it, struck him into his side, and two things came out, blood, and anybody know? Water. Water. How does water flow to you? Because judgment flowed to him. Judgment flowed to Jesus. He was struck so that now, because judgment came to him, by the power of the Spirit of God, life can come to us. And this is why, and I don't know if you know the rest of the story, that happened, but that wasn't the only time Moses struck the rock. A year later in Numbers chapter 20, you go back and read this, now they're not down in the Mount Sinai area, now they're further up, closer to the promised land, and the people are griping again about no water. And so God tells Moses this time, hey Moses, go to the rock, which was a different rock, and he says, speak to it. Speak to it. But if you know the story, Moses doesn't speak to it. He strikes it. And in Moses chapter 20, I think it's verse 13, God tells Moses, you will not go into the promised land now. Now, if you've ever read that story, have you ever wondered why in the world God wouldn't let Moses go in for striking the rock twice? Have you have ever read that story, you're like, that seems kind of harsh. Which, just a little side note, the whole reason why Moses struck the rock is because the people he was leading were complaining. So please don't complain because you'll make me strike things that I shouldn't. Just a little side note there, all right? They're all complaining, and Moses is like, you stubborn, stick-niff people. And God judges him for it. Why? Because he wasn't striking a rock a second time. He was striking a Jesus a second time and here's the amazing part of what Jesus just said now because Jesus was struck all we have to do is speak all we have to do is speak now we don't have to strike anymore and so you saw way back in Exodus and way back in Numbers what God was going to do with Jesus and so now when Jesus stands up at the festival and he says come to me and out of your heart, the rock will flow streams of living water. Why? Because Jesus was saying, I'm about to go be struck. Judgment's about to come down on me, and life will flow to you. My friends, do you understand the offer? He says, Now he said this about the Spirit, who they were yet to receive, but if they believed, they would. Christian, do you understand what is available to you now if you just simply say in Jesus' name? If you just simply come to the Father and you say, Father, I know that Jesus was struck for me. Will you now fill me with the living water of the Holy Spirit? Will you now satisfy me with everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus did for me? Paul argues like this, if God who gave you his son, will he not also give you all things? The hard work has been done. The price has been paid. The judgment has come down. The staff has already gone into his side. And now what flows to you is water that will satisfy you. In the same way that your body was made for water, your soul was made for the spirit of God. And there is no other thing, no other person, no other object that can satisfy you and quench your thirst like the Holy Spirit can. And you and I have it. Watch this. By simply speaking. Speaking. That's why God got mad at Moses. He was like, you already struck him once. Now all you got to do is speak. Speak. Listen to me, church. All the resources of heaven are at your command if you just speak it. Now, people will make a mockery of this and they will start, well, oh, what's this, this pastor gone, name it, and claim it. Right? We just say it. So people are like, God, would you manifest a Mercedes tomorrow morning? That would be awesome. Now, is driving a Mercedes wrong? No, great German car. But watch this. How sinful is it if we try to use the spirit of God to give us something that we actually think will satisfy us more than him? See, that's the problem of your heart. Let me say it like this. Has there been a time in your life where you really wanted something and you were begging God for it and it wasn't even a bad thing? I gotta wonder if God would say, I want you to ask for me like that. What if you ask for more of the spirit like you asked for that thing? What if you came to me for me? Then out of your heart would flow streams of living water. So maybe the reason why Jesus hasn't been satisfying to us it's because we keep asking Jesus for other things than the Spirit. What if every day we said, God, satisfy me today in the Spirit of God who was purchased for me when you struck Jesus. Satisfy my heart. Because here's what I know. If you walk into your marriage satisfied, you'll have a more satisfactory marriage. The problem is you keep walking into your marriage thirsty. Have you seen that yet? You keep walking into your marriage thirsty. And you're saying to your spouse, "Satisfy me." And maybe this is what you should start saying. "Baby, remember I'm saltwater." But see, if I walk into my relationship with my wife, Lindsay, satisfied, then watch this. Then I'm seeking to pour out, not drink in. If I walk into my job satisfied in who Jesus is for me, then I'm seeking to pour out, not drink in. If I walk into the culture satisfied, and who Jesus is for me and the Holy Spirit is bringing life to me because I'm satisfied in who Jesus is because no one's ever done for me what Jesus has done, then I'm walking in to pour out, not drink in. See, that's why Jesus stood up on the last day and he said, you think that water coming out of a rock was a big deal? You wait and see what I do with your heart. In your heart... I'll give you living water. I'll satisfy you in your spirit through the power of the Holy Spirit so that nothing and no one could take away your joy. See, that's what's offered to us. That's what's offered to us in Christ. But yet we look at the commands of God as though he's trying to rob our joy, don't we? Teenagers, hear me, listen to the commands of God and you'll have more joy, not less. Do marriage the way God says, do life the way God says, do finances the way God says and you will have more satisfaction, not less because you get God. All of that, Jesus says, if you thirst, come to me. Now let's go on, we're not quite done Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that when the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Verse 43, so there was a division among the people over him. Little side note, it's fascinating to me the response To the words of Jesus. And I want to point this out because again, I want us to be helpful in just the season that we're currently, our current cultural climate that we're living in. You and I need to understand something about Jesus. He will always be divisive. Talking about Jesus will always divide people. This is why the Bible or the Bible calls itself the sword of the spirit that. Divides between truth and error, you know, bone and marrow. And Jesus himself said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And the idea with that is I came to differentiate between truths and lies. And we've been talking over the last several weeks about teaching and how all teaching is tied to someone. And and if I love someone, I don't have to lie to them, I can tell them the truth. But you and I have to understand something. And the faster that you can wrap your mind around this, the better off you'll be. Not everyone will respond well to you speaking about Jesus, not everyone will respond well to your boundaries or your morals. In fact, there's three primary responses here, three different groups of people, and it's quite fascinating to me because culture has not changed in 2,000 years. There's a group that says, oh, he's a prophet, which that's what the Muslims say about Jesus. I'm not knocking the Muslims, but I'm just pointing out they do not think that Jesus was God's son. That is blasphemous. They think he was a prophet, just like Muhammad was a prophet, They would say, oh, he's a prophet, he's a good man. And this is what a lot of people people in secular society think about Jesus, like, oh yeah, look at Jesus. He was a nice dude, he was nice to children, had animals around him, he's like Mr. Rogers, right? He's a nice cat, right? But famously, C.S. Lewis said, if you actually looked at what he said, you would not say, this is nice. He's either a lunatic. There's another group of people that say, well, He can't be from Galilee. The Christ is not gonna be from Galilee. And so what they're saying about him is, oh, he's a liar. He's a liar. What they failed to realize that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. And here's what's crazy to me. You wanna know how God got Jesus to Bethlehem? You go back and read the story. He got Jesus to Bethlehem through a worldwide census at the time through a pagan Roman leader. God accomplished his purposes through the choices of the evil king. He got Jesus to Bethlehem. Now, God could have just told Joseph, hey, go to Bethlehem. But he didn't do it. Why? Because God is spectacular. He said, no, I'm going to get Jesus to Bethlehem, but I'm going to do it through the actions of an evil empire. So that all you folks for generations could trust that even though you think evil is in control, I am. So he was from Bethlehem. But all these people are saying, no, he's a liar. He's not a good dude. He's not a pro. He's a liar. And some people will say that. And then the third response is they say, oh, is this the Christ? That's what C.S. Lewis famously said. He's a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. Those are the only options. He's either crazy or he's insane or he's God. But here's what I want to encourage you as I'll show you in just a second. You better wrestle down who he is because it will only get harder for you to believe in him. It will only get harder for you to believe in him. And I gotta be straight with you. That actually excites me. Because the thing that annoys me is not un-Christian people acting in unchristian ways. The thing that annoys me is Christian people acting like there is no Christ. So I'm actually kind of excited that it's getting harder to follow Jesus because it's going to cut out all the posers. And it's going to force you to say, no one ever spoke like that guy. Look at the next two words, next two verses, sorry. Verse three, verses 44 through 46. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. That's what I was telling you last week. God will accomplish his purposes. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. So don't miss this. The officers were sent by the Pharisees to arrest him. They go there to arrest him. They hear his teaching. They're dumbfounded. They don't arrest him. They go back. They say, why didn't you arrest him? They're like, we can't believe what we just heard. No one spoke like this man. And this is where I want to encourage you, church. Because again, like I was just saying, one of the most heartbreaking things as a pastor is to watch Christians get so swept up in another person's words that are not Jesus. Now this can happen in relationships with love. I I can't tell you how many times I have seen a devoted follower of Jesus walk away because of somebody they were in relationship with. Why do you think that God gave the people a commandment, do not marry those people? It wasn't a race thing. It wasn't that God was opposed to the races, he was opposed to the religions. Those people will steal your heart and they'll do it through their bodies and that happens all the time. I see it all the time. Another thing that breaks my heart is when I see, not just in relationships, not just with other people, but when Christians get so swept up in the words of politicians. And again, I say this often because it's a recurring theme that I always want to come back to is Christians so easily get swept up in the smooth talking of some person. But if you don't come to the conclusion that there is Jesus and then there's everybody else. And you are secure in the fact that no one ever spoke like Jesus. So therefore, my allegiance will go to no one else but him. Then you'll be swept up. And have you noticed this yet, that politicians love to overpromise because they want your vote? They'll say, vote for me. I'll save the planet. I'll save America. I'll save this. Can I be honest with you? I would vote for a politician who said something like this. You know what? In our system, I can't do much, but I won't embarrass you. Vote for me. (laughs) For real. Because you realize our system is designed against having one powerful person. It's purposely designed against that. Why? Because our founders came from a kingdom with a king, and they saw the craziness of a one-person system. So they built out something that took away power from one individual person. Why? Because power goes to people's heads all the time. Watch it. This, look at the next two verses 47, 48. It's almost like the same thing happens every generation. The Pharisees answer them Have you also been deceived? Verse 48 Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is a curse. Here's what the Pharisees just said: these officers. Well, the authorities don't believe in him because it's about authority rule. It's not about you know that right. It's not about majority rule. It's about authority rule. So you and I have, and I have to be very careful who we see as our authority. Because see, Jesus said in Matthew 28, all. Authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. I submit to one authority and one authority alone, and that's Christ. Everything else is subservient to that. Government, parents, everything. And this is what amazes me. And if you haven't paid attention to the last 18 months about the centralization of authority, then you've been living, watch this, under a rock. And how so many people have quickly given over authority to groups of people and said, well, the authorities. And then our news media trots out. Have you noticed this? Experts. And you're like, Who? how are they an expert? They never tell you why they're an expert. They just say they're an expert. They could have gotten a degree from Cracker Jack, and yet they're an expert because the media says so. And we so quickly, blindly, allow authorities to come in and tell us how to think how to live. And here's what I'm just trying to get you to see. We are like Daniel now. See, the Babylonians came in and conquered the Jewish people, and then they were living as exiles. And Daniel, they even changed his name. If you know the stories. He submitted where he could, but he resisted when it went against his God. And it cost him, didn't he? They threw Daniel in the lion's den. But guess what? God was with him in the lion's den. See, I got to wonder now if Christians wouldn't even be thrown in because we just go with it. But that's the culture that we live in. And if, if you're not aware, if we're not aware of this, again, I'm not just talking about like specific things, vaccines and all that stuff. I'm just talking in general. There are powers behind everything that is happening. And if you and I are not aware of them, then we will listen to this voice, listen to this voice. I'm like, no one ever spoke like her. No one ever spoke like him. Then your allegiance will go to that authority. And that's the measure to which the religious leaders used to judge against Jesus. Well, the authorities didn't say so. The authorities know better than you. But the problem is there's a lot of believers that don't even know what Jesus said. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but especially politicians, they start trotting out celebrities and people in our culture that have authority that we would listen to. And, and I always laugh, and I told this to Lindsay before. I always laugh when celebrities come out, and I'm like, I ain't listening to you. You're insane. Like, I'm gonna listen to you about how to vote or what marriage is or what the morals should be. Look at you, you are crazy. Last couple verses. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? This is where we get our rule, innocent until proven guilty, So here's our boy Nicodemus. Remember him from John chapter three, Nick at night? (laughs) If you didn't know that TV show, it was awesome. That, you know, whole Nick came at nighttime. So Nicodemus, ironically, this is what's funny. Ironically, when Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus, it was about the Holy Spirit. Jesus just talked about the Spirit. Watch this. The Holy Spirit is turning Nicodemus's heart of stone into a heart of flesh, that water is flowing. And when water's flowing, truth's coming out of his mouth. And we know, just by history, at the end of Jesus' life, Nicodemus is a follower of Jesus because of the work of the Spirit in his life. Verse 52, last verse, and we're done. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Search and see. That's the title of the message this week. Search and see. Church, here's the good news. Governments come and go. Nations rise and fall. You gotta understand that. This nation will fall. Every nation does. America is not heaven but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So you better search and see and come to the conclusion that no one ever spoke like Jesus. No one ever spoke like that man because he wasn't just a man. He was God. And if you haven't searched and seen that, then you still have a heart of stone. You haven't seen that Jesus was struck and therefore you don't have the spirit in your life leading you into truth. So let me leave you with this point and we're done. Search and see. Search and see that Jesus was struck. This is a long one here with a lot of alliteration, but I gotta be honest, I'm really proud of it. Search and see that Jesus was struck so that we could speak to our hearts and receive the living water of the Spirit. Search and see. See, I'm not afraid for you to search it. Search it. I'm not afraid for you to study other religions of the world. Study them. I'm not afraid for you to look at teaching. I told you a few weeks ago, I pray pray to God that you do. I'm not afraid for you to study it, to search it, and to see it, because no one, no one ever came back to life again and never died. No one. See, everybody else that pontificates about what happens after they die, watch this, hasn't died to come back and tell you, oh, that's true. Tell me another person that has done what Jesus has done. There's not one. There never will be one. Search it and see it. And if he came back to life from the dead, and if he's alive right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, from him flowing to us streams of living water through the power of the Holy Spirit, why would I not listen to him in every area of my life? Why would not listen to him when, I, when it talks about marriage? Why would not listen to him when it talks about finances? This is what amazes me. People are like, I can trust God with my salvation, but I don't know if I can tithe. <laughs> really? Trust him. Search and see. Show me another person who was struck. For you, who was pierced for you, and who rose again and says to you today, Come to me. And out of your heart will flow water that satisfies your soul. No one ever spoke like that. Let's pray. Father, I'm just so struck, all struck by the truth that Jesus was struck, that he was pierced, for my transgressions and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, Isaiah 53. Father, I pray right now for anybody in this room or listening that has never searched and seen and come to Jesus, that right now you would save them. You would overcome their resistance to him. You would take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, and make water flow from the spirit that satisfies them. Save them, God. No one looking around or talking here as we close, if you want to come to Jesus because you realize you're thirsty and you want to be filled with the Spirit and be saved and all you gotta do is speak. Life is awaiting you if you'll just open your mouth and confess. So if you wanna do that, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud, but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent Jesus in my place and you struck him from my sin. But he rose again and he gives me the spirit. So I ask you to save me. Forgive me. Thank you for loving me. Satisfy me in Jesus. Now again, no one looking around or talking, but if you just pray to trust Jesus and you're in one of our locations, we simply wanna know about that. So we just simply lift your hand up so we can see you. Thank you. We got men and women are gonna walk around and put a gift in your hand and when they do, you can put it down. In just a moment, whether you're in person or online, you can... Fill out our digital connection card and let us know so we can follow up with you. But then, those of us who have trusted Jesus, I wanna encourage you with something specific. Hebrews says that Jesus was struck once and for all. So God is not looking for you to keep striking yourself with guilt and shame. You can quit beating up yourself because Jesus was struck. God took that so seriously with Moses that he wouldn't let him strike him a second time. So what Jesus did on the cross was enough for even your sins, my sins. So today, We don't have to strike, we just have to speak. We just have to confess and say, God, again, I look to something else to satisfy me. Would you satisfy me in Jesus? Satisfy me, fill me with your spirit, with living water, not the dead water, not sin, but with Jesus. And the promise of the gospel is he will do it. Because he who did not spare his son, how will he not also graciously give you all things? Just speak. Father, I pray that we would speak in faith today. We would speak when we are struggling, when we need to be satisfied, when our hearts are lying to us about what will satisfy us. God, I pray that we would come back to the truth of what Jesus said, that only the Spirit can satisfy us, and so there are riches to be had for us in you. So God, thank you. There is no one like Jesus, no one spoke like Jesus. There is no one who can give us life like Jesus. And God, I pray that we would speak in faith, Words that bring life. Thank you. Thank you for satisfying us. And God, we want to continue to realize that yes, Jesus will be divisive, but we want to speak not only to our own hearts, but to a culture around us, not in divisive ways because Jesus himself is divisive, but we can love them. We can speak humbly. And we ask you, God, to continue to make your word go forth to all nations because that's what you told us to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.